in case you missed it, my book Anatomy of Abundance hit the market and it is officially an Amazon bestseller. We couldn't have done it without your help. Thank you for being here and supporting me. If you haven't picked up your copy, pick it up today. Learn how to transcend the limits of scarcity and rewrite your life's narrative, transforming it into a story of boundless prosperity and fulfillment with Anatomy of Abundance. Join renowned author Petrina Wisdom and 16 Brilliant Minds on a Transformative Journey. Discover awe-inspiring narratives and empowering strategies to attain abundance in relationships, career, health, and wealth. Every purchase breathes life into a remarkable cause, donating book proceeds to the Shine Organization. Shine Organization empowers sex trafficking survivors to break free from scarcity, fear, and past traumas, and boldly create their own unique path to abundance through entrepreneurship. Buy your copy today. You're listening to Fuck Being Stuck, the podcast where we spotlight women who've gone from managing to mastering life's challenges and the badass practitioners that are changing the way we heal. I'm Dr. Sabrina Nicole, psychologist, coach, author, and speaker. But more importantly, I'm a woman who had my own journey to mastering chronic pain. You don't need to be stuck anymore. Fuck that. I'm so excited you all are joining me today. Today's episode is all about joy, but probably not in the way that you're thinking of. We're going to talk about how joy is our justice. My guest today is Tanmeet Seti, MD. She's an integrative psychedelic board certified family medicine physician who has devoted her career to caring for the most vulnerable and teaching physicians how to care for these communities in the most humane and skillful way possible. She has spent the last 25 years on the front lines practicing primary care, global trauma, and community activism. Her first book, Joy is My Justice, which will be out soon, presses the conversation on joy in a whitewashed wellness world to examine those who have been pushed to the margins of the conversation with its platitudes and explore joy as a revolutionary healing practice and human right accessible to all of us. Dr. Seti is a recognized expert in integrative medicine. She lectures nationally and has authored chapters in four integrative medicine textbooks. And she's also spoken on three TEDx stages about using gratitude as medicine. Welcome. Thank you so much, Sabrina. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Oh boy, so where do we start? Mm -hmm. You mentioned several, there's so many layers here. You mentioned about uh, joy as a deeply embodied human right, regardless of our trauma or suffering. Maybe we should just start there. Yes. Yes. You know, this has become one of my life missions now in my work is to really allow people to have the faith and capacity to believe that joy is accessible to them, no matter what the external systems or diagnoses or losses or pressures or suffering are. We sort of have this confusion, I think, that joy comes to us when things are right or that joy Mm. is for us if we deserve it, if we're thinking right, if we're doing the right things. And joy is this innate, deep embodied experience that is available to all of us. And it's become a part of my justice work to really help people understand that that is their human right. 
And that it's already there within them, really. Yes. Just needing yes. To, to be unpacked, you know, need to be reminded of it. Yes. That it's right there. We need to know we deserve it and we get to choose it every day. The thing that's hard, I find a couple of things are hard for people when I say that. One is that they say, well, you know, I don't want to acknowledge, I don't want to deny my pain. And I'll tell you, I'm all about sitting in your pain. I actually think that's the deep first step to joy, to be honest, because joy is so expansive. Joy is so broad on the continuum of experience that it allows us to hold the pain, the anger, the fear, the frustration, all of it in a way that happiness cannot. Happiness is a beautiful thing. You know, I I hope everyone can feel happy as often as they can, but it's binary and it's attached to outcome and it's cognitive. Joy is expansive and allows us to hold pain while deeply knowing it's our right to also experience beauty and wonder in this world. So you said happiness is cognitive. Yeah, I mean, it's based on external outcome. I'll be happy when this happens. It's not a bad thing at all, but it's not as expansive as joy. So what I find we fail people in this mental health conversation is we talk about them as being the same thing or one thing. And then it feels like if I can't be happy, because in a moment where you are deeply sad, grieving, angry, or pissed off, it is true. You are not happy, right? But in that moment to say, I am not happy, I cannot be happy, it's actually depriving us of the ability to access the fact that joy is still accessible to us. That's complex. And that's what I go into in the book, but it's not as complex as people think. It's not easy, but it's pretty simple. Because there's a way that suffering in this world, whether it's from external sources of loss of loved ones or diagnoses or trauma we've experienced, or whether it's a system-based oppression and suffering, all of it thrives and flourishes the more we do not thrive and have joy. And so it is a way for me to get my power back to reclaim my power in my body. Wow. So when you started out your career in medicine, who would have thought all these years later that you're now talking about joy? Right. Yeah. I always knew that I was going to do the work, the activism work, but I didn't know that Mm -hmm. it started with joy. So how did you, what was your journey like to discovering your own joy to be able to now share this message? Yeah. With everyone else. For one, I realized over the last 25 years that one-on-one every day in the exam room, people are coming to me with their pain, their autoimmune conditions, their blood pressure problems, their diabetes. But in that conversation, every time is their loss of meaning, connection, their trauma of even carrying chronic illness, their inability to access joy and how that limits their ability to heal in their life. And so therein was a practice with my patients always. And then in my own personal life, when my second child was diagnosed with what's equivalent to an ALS for children, degenerative and fatal disease, I was pregnant with my third and got a diagnosis for my second. I realized in that moment, 
this is, you know, you're talking to a woman who, if something's wrong or unfair in the world, I go fight about it. You know, I fight in the courtroom, I fight on the streets, I fight in the exam room, I fight with insurance companies, you name it, right? (laughs) And all of a sudden, there was nothing to fight for. There was no hope, there was no way out. And it took up this path to realize the thing to fight for was myself. The thing to fight for was my human right, even as a mother watching her child suffer, decline, and eventually die. Even while I watch that, I have the right to access joy. I do not need to feel guilt or shame or feel like I don't get it because I'm not the mother next door who has healthy children. That's just one example, but everyone has their suffering or their loss or their trauma in their life. Sure, sure. And sometimes it's kind of like we don't realize that we're actually mourning the loss of our former self as our bodies change and we're not able to do things the same way. Yes. yes. And that we can get stuck in that. And we don't refer to it as grief or anything, but in essence, it really is. Yes, I'm with you 100% on that. And there are ways that we deny that, right? Like, oh, I'm just getting older and I should just accept this or I should... And the truth is, the more you turn towards your loss, that's really a major foundational concept in the book is that when I realized my inclination was to run away from my pain, to say, I don't want this. I don't want this life. This isn't for me. This must have been a mistake. There's no way this could be happening, right? Or to withdraw completely, like I just can't do this. Those are our bodies, our nervous system's primal, natural inclinations to protect us, right? But it was when I decided and learned to walk back towards my pain, to not deny it, that that's when this revolution emerged, which is that joy from a very deep well in my body, the same deep well as my pain, emerged in ways I had never felt before. Wow. The modern world bombards our brains with an overwhelming amount of inputs and stressors. Our brains are struggling to adapt. A lack of brain balance means many of us are anxious, looking for energy in the wrong places, and struggling to get a good night's sleep. The solution is BrainTap. BrainTap combines a variety of proven methods that restore balance to your brain for optimal performance of mind and body. This technology communicates directly with your brain so you don't have to do anything. Simply sit back, relax, and push play. Central to BrainTap technology is the concept of brainwave entrainment. The brain will naturally synchronize with external rhythms. And several modalities are used to accomplish this, including binaural beats, isochronic tones, guided visualization, 10-cycle holographic music, and with the BrainTap headset, you'll have the added benefit of light frequencies. The overall benefits of BrainTap include improved clarity, improved quality of sleep, and more energy. Start your brain fitness journey today with a 14-day free trial. Click on the link in the show notes. And what type of practitioners did you work with as you were going through the process? Because obviously something stuck out in your mind that was like, no, this is it. And it didn't probably come from like the regular methods that we consider. Yeah. 
I mean, I um, there's so many, and I outline them in the book in a way to show you that everyone's is different, right? So your path to joy will be different than mine. I offer these tools in the book as a as a kind of a gateway to your own roadmap that either one of them will open up your path or inspire you to find one that is different. I don't have all the answers for everyone. But what I can say, and and you know, it's funny, someone, Sabrina, just asked me, well, what's your definition of joy? And I actually told them, I mean, it was a process in writing this book. I racked my brain for how to define it. And I realized finally it was an, a moment of complete revelation to realize I cannot define joy because then I will be abiding by the same systems that have stripped it from us every day. Your joy is your joy. My joy is my joy. And this book is just a path to you finding yours. And I use stories of mine and many of my patients to show you that it is possible. And possibly one of those stories will open up your path. And the tools can help you open that lock. But I can't say what anyone else's joy is. Wow. So it's really up to each person to explore that and define it for themselves. Yes. But what I, and what I really try to show in the book is that often I think these tools that I talk about, many of them are ones we've heard about so many times, Mm -hmm. um, gratitude, self-compassion, right? But I and others dismiss them very often because they are offered in contrived platitudes you know, the world is falling apart around you, just be grateful. You know, you feel bad, but you're just not thinking in the right mindset. You know, you just need to think yourself better out of this. You need to manifest a better life, you know, all this stuff. And the truth is that if we're talking about poverty, oppression, the loss of my child, you know, so many different things, I can't and nobody can think themselves out of that. You know, but that comes from a very privileged wellness space to offer it as a, you know, you can just get out of it and you're not resilient enough. And what I do is reframe these tools with this science that is there and the justice is there to show you that actually there are ways to use these tools that embody your joy and empower you to be the strongest revolution you can be in your body, right? And that you don't need to worry about these platitudes. We get to use all these tools too. We just needed the language around them to understand how they could be useful for us. So let's, I want you to talk a little bit about joy as a bold act of resistance in reference to the body. Yes. So, you know, in reference to the body, I'll even go really micro for you, is that there are ways anyone who's listening who's ever felt othered or marginalized may resonate with what I'm about to say, but I'll speak from my experience that there are many times, often more than not, (laughs) that I feel that it's implicitly or explicitly being told to me to not take up space in this world, to be smaller. And those come in small ways as, you know, the large white man in the airplane next to me thinking he can have my whole, you know, whole armrest (laughs) versus, you know, more overt ones of, you know, even with a lab coat on being asked if I'm, you know, the cleaning crew or, you know, what in the hospital. And so really just looking at how is it that we in our body can 
translate this world in a way that allows us to take up space, right? And so many of these tools do that by actually changing our neurochemistry, by making our nervous system explicitly really allow us to feel safer in our body so that we can step more safely into this world, even though it has betrayed us over and over. So this sense of bold active resistance, that is the micro level of sort of how in your body can you step into it, feel safe, find moments of ease and reclaim your power. And then there's the macro level of, you know, these systems that have beaten us down, these losses we have encountered. I mean, for God's sake, the world, the whole world together has encountered one of the largest traumas in my, for sure, in my lifetime that we've gone through together, right? And we, there are people acting like we're done and nobody, you know, we're all good. But there are people still traumatized from this. There are ways that we will never be the same. And the question is, you know, these systems, these losses, these sufferings, they beat us down and make us feel like we're not worthy. But when we step into our joy, into our power, we reclaim that right to stand in this world and thrive just like anyone else. And so joy is what I think, honestly, I've come to realize possibly the most important liberation practice I now have. Wow. So tell me, can you talk a little bit about the, not too technical, but about the neuroscience and what kinds of things activate uh, the vagus nerve so that we can start to change our neurochemistry? Yeah. And I won't get too technical. It's pretty simple when it boils down to it is that when we are on threat, hypervigilant, traumatized, suffering, beaten down, you know, held, (laughs) you know, held back, our threat centers go up our fear centers get activated. We are told we are not safe in our brain and our body. These practices of gratitude, self-compassion, movement, of breath work, of what I call grace, I'm done with forgiveness. We can talk about that later if you want, but I'm done with forgiveness. You know, these practices actually allow us to give our vagus nerve the capacity to tell our body, you are safe right now in this moment. The world may not be good. The world may be unfair, but you are safe here right now. And when we do that, we dampen those fear centers, most most notably in the middle of our brain, in the amygdala. And people have probably heard that word because it's it's thought of as the fear center. I think it's, you know, I want to reframe that for people. It's, it is a fear center, but it's also just a messenger. It's a messenger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people, people often, another way that we're, you know, I think unfairly taught in the wellness world about don't have fear, you know, calm your threat. The truth is this world's scary. I'm glad I have threat centers because I'm, I'm watching my back, you know? And so exactly. my question is, how do I, Keep that knowing that my messages are good and right, but give my body the justice to also feel safe in the next moment when I am safe in another one and not still stay in that threat mode, right? Because my body wants to do that for me constantly. And I just need to give it a chance to stand down just to give me a little break, right? Exactly. Because it serves its purpose, you know, is to protect us but it's yeah. overactivated. If it's, you know, if it's overactivated, that's where the problem lies. We can't stay there too long 
because of just what it does to us internally. Right. And I mean, I've heard people tell, my patients have told me, and I've seen people tell patients, you know, you just are too too hyped up. You're too on, you know, on guard. Like, no joke, Sherlock. I mean, you know, like, this world is dangerous. And they they don't live in a privileged community like you where they can take that guard down. So, yeah, it's hard. So instead of admonishing people for that, how about we say, that's a message that I have empathy for. Let's see how we can also give you justice in your body. You deserve freedom in moments in your body as well. So how can we get people that are from non-marginalized communities to understand this because they're the ones putting out the message, right? Right. Well, I'm hoping, I'm trying to start a conversation like that with the book, but the question you might be really meaning is, you know, how do we get them to listen to this conversation, right? That we're mm-hmm. that we're all trying to have. I think that um, it's just going to take talking and talking more about it, about getting people with larger platforms that people will listen to to talk about it. I think it's it's also very important to me, for instance, with launching the book and events I'm having, that I'm doing them all with women of color who have strong voices and strong platforms so that we can keep talking about these things in a way that allows others to understand and hear us a little better, you know, that we lead the conversation, that we have our voices heard in that way. You know, I don't know. Will I, Do I believe they will hear it? I hope so. I'm going to remain hopeful. And as I quote, Brian Stevenson's one of my idols in the activism world. And if people don't know him, they should look him up. He uh, founded Equal Justice Initiative. And I don't know what more to tell you other than this man is, has been sent to do the work. And he says, then I quote him, I talk about him in the book. He says that hope, he could not do the work he does if he did not believe in hope and seeing the unseen. And so when you ask me that, all I can think is it feels unseen, but I'm ready to see it. And I have hope that we can see it. And I thank Brian for that teaching because he really has given me that that understanding. What about your community? If are they, What are they really struggling with? Let's try to apply it to them. Okay. So I work with women that have chronic pain conditions. Yes. And I started out with my own journey, trying to um, find my way around a chronic pain condition, a diagnosis. And, you know, unfortunately, when you get a diagnosis, it seems to like take over your whole being because you it's almost like you're like, well, I have this like I am that. But we're so much more than that. And I had to peel back my own layers to realize that there was this strong like mental component to this label. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn how to put some space between myself and the label so that I could like breathe because that was the space I needed to be able to settle my body down. And I find that people have a hard time separating from that. And you get caught up in the cycle of fear. Once again, the fear centers are triggered, you know, and as women, we take care of everybody, usually before ourselves on top of this. So the women I work with are having trouble with that balance, like turning toward themselves and being able to help themselves first and then extending that to everyone. Yes. Yes. I love this. share. Thank you for sharing that. It's so different to read about, but to hear it is just so 
you know, potent. And I think about that a lot. There's actually a lot about this in the book. But when you say that, what resonates for me also is this sense of what you really did was rewrite your story, right? And you rewrote it to be bigger than the one that was given to you. Because the way the medical system gives you that story is very different than the way you've rewritten it. Yeah. And, you know, the message, you know, doctors are very, you know, they want to give you the facts and, you know, they want to keep it real without feeling, you know, because there's no feeling in that. They're just like, oh, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do exactly. when it gets worse, maybe. Oh, so I have a story in the book exactly like that where my in the hope section, because, you know, I, I sort of people will say like being hopeful is kind of false positivity or kind of like, you know, there's it's just like, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I really don't feel good. I'm not hopeful. And uh, I really break down two big things. One is that, you know, in medical school, I was taught not to give, quote, false hope. You know, don't mm. give false hope. And then I had a mentor, luckily, uh, farther down in my integrative training, who said, hope is never false, Thanmith. Hope is as true as anything there is. And that really shifted me, you know, really shifted me to think, wow, what's this condition thinking that I've been taught, right? And, you know, the doctor who gave us the genetic diagnosis for my son, I mean, my husband and I will never forget, he sat there and he said, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. And I tell that story in the book because in the context of hope, because I say, I wish I could go back and tell him, no, there's so much we can do. And hope is exactly, you know, people say they have to have hope, but I ask people, how do you think that we get up every day and do this again? That is our body's innate hope that the next day might be a little better. Maybe the next day will be a little easier. We would not be getting up. Yeah. Yeah. I think we really have to restore like a belief that there is another outcome possible. Like there, there are p other possibilities. And I think with my own doctor who was, you know, she was pain management and that's what she did. I, I challenged her belief because every time I went back to her and said, well, I'm trying something, I need you to lower my medication. She looked at me. And when I got down to the last dosage, she said, I get it. I get it. Because I was telling her over and over again, like, it's more than just the body. Like, you can't treat my body without treating my mind and my spirit. And those are going to get me so much further yeah. um, than anything else. Yeah. That power. Oh, I love that story. I love that. And, you know, this whole notion of, you know, I talk about this, that, you know, he said there's nothing we can do. And what he was attached to was this only diet, this only outcome that of it being fatal. Now, I mean, that is kind of the most tragic outcome. I'm not going to lie. And at the same time, what he couldn't have space for was, I hope that you have moments of ease. I hope that your family is buoyed by love through all of this. I hope mm. that you find meaning in your son's life and your life. I hope, you know, I mean, I, and I say this all the time, you know, when he was diagnosed, my dreams as a mother were completely shattered, completely shattered. But what I didn't know is that I could pick them up and make them into bigger ones than the ones I was given. My dreams for him now are far larger than the ones I had that were shattered 
And not to say it's not a good dream to go to college or to get married or, you know, um, give me grandchildren or any of that. <laughs> but my dreams for him now are that he will touch ease, that he will show me love, that he will teach me the real meaning of what I'm doing here. He will touch others in a way to inspire them to be their best selves. Now, those may seem all esoteric to people, and that can be. That's why I still cry and yell every day. It's a hard life. But I can hold joy in an expansive way with that, having gratitude for all the ways he has touched me in, in like I'm explaining. Wow. That reminds me. I was reading a book called um, Loyalty to Your Heart. Oh, I don't know that. It's one. a book on spiritual psychology. And she talked about how we define success, you know, often linear, you know, it's goal, outcome, you know, it's ego, it's all, you know, but we can measure success in other ways in terms of our spiritual development. Yeah. And it really is just willing to embrace the journey. Like that's the success right there exactly. is embracing that journey. And it's really not about the destination. So, so true. And I think it's a really, people will say, so, you know, I give a lot of talks, you know, and I, I speak about these practices a lot in detail, each, you know, different practices. And I almost always have someone come up to me after and say, you know, what you, what you said and the way you deliver, they really touched me. And I say, okay, thank you. And they say, but I don't think I could do that. And I say, first, I, I, well, I have a couple of things I say. It depends on the mood I'm in. But the one thing, one of the things I say is, you know, it's just an invitation. It's an invitation. Mm. This is, this is not a dictum. It's not how you have to do. It's just an invitation. But if I have time and if I intuit that they are looking for more from me, I, I sometimes will say, and how is what you're doing working for you? Mm. And they will say, not so well. Always, because there's a reason they're saying this to me, right? And I say that not, I just say, then this is just another way. You know, this is just another way. And yes, it is hard. I won't lie. It's, it can be hard, but it's not as hard as the way it was for me before. There's a difference in the hard. This hard is a labor of my soul and my heart that brings things back to me a thousandfold. That work, that hard, was escape and resistance of the most primal kind. And to stay in that is very challenging. So can you talk a little bit about your work as in integrative medicine as opposed to traditional Western medicine? Yeah. So, you know, the big, the, there are some big differences and the nuanced differences. One of the biggest differences is that, you know, what I'm really doing when I talk to patients is looking for the root cause. What is happening here in someone's body, mind, and spirit that is imbalanced, off balance, needs, you know, a little bit of support either externally or internally that can help us with what's going on? Instead of, um, as you know, in medical training, we are taught to externally treat everything. So, you know, if you have this, I give you this medicine, I do this procedure and I do that. And then when you have a complication from that, I give you another one. And then we, do, you know, and I'm not discounting the power of Western medicine for some things. There is a lot of power. That's why I integrate them. But in terms of what most of my patients are managing, which is chronic illness and chronic conditions, that kind of band-aiding is not useful. 
So integrative medicine really says, you know, what is at the root of this and how far back can we look to see where that root cause, uh, you know, that is. So it might mean uncovering decades of what's been going on versus two months of your joint pain that you have or something, you know. And then the second really big nuanced difference is that I'm always looking first, what can I take out that might be an impediment to healing or might be the cause of the condition before I put anything in? Not that I don't ever put things in, but if that thing that I take out, whether it's a way of eating, a way of thinking, a way of living, a toxin in the environment, you know, on and on, if I can take that out it not only, even if it doesn't solve the problem, it can create such a lower barrier to healing that what I put in becomes that much more potent, right? We're not going uphill all the time. So those are two really, what I found in the last decades to be the biggest differences between my partners and I, as skillful as they are, it's just a different philosophy. It's a different kind of way to look at patients. Yeah, and I'm wondering why, you know, why Western medicine isn't looking at things from that <laughs> integrated way. Because it's so funny. I had my second pain management doctor was from Ghana. So I give her my spiel about, you know, I'm not on any medicine. I don't know if I'm going to need you for meds, but this is my deal. I meditate. I manage with that. And she says, no, 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 I get it. A mind body, you know, a mind body approach. I get it. She's like, I was trained in Ghana. And I was like, oh. So she understood right away what I was talking about. She's like, so I'm not going to push you if you need, you know, call, but she was like, there are things that we may be able to do, but if you don't need it, that's fine. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I wonder too. I, I know that two biggest things that I see are a problem are one is uh, big pharma controlling medical education. And so there's a big push to, they want you to use medications. And I will not lie. I think they're one of the biggest problems. The second thing I see is <laughs> we could use this answer for almost every system, Sabrina, that is oppressing us, but capitalism. I mean, medicine is wow. a business, you know, it's a business. And I say this firmly and often, I'm not quite sure why I'm called a primary care physician because tertiary care is the hospital and primary care is me. And there's no secondary care. I'm not quite sure where that got skipped. And really, I should be secondary care and primary care should be meditation, your home remedies, your grandmother, the community healer, you know, connection, community. And that is what we should do before you get to me. And then when you get to me, I can compliment that. Right. And so I act, but I know why those aren't first line. Who's paying for that? Exactly. You know how hard it is to get the insurance to pay for nutrition if you're not obese? What? You know, if you're not overweight. Oh, no, you don't. We don't pay for nutrition until you're overweight or you have, you know, high blood pressure and diabetes or something. That's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. And I, yeah, the idea of prevention in this country, especially in the U.S., is just it's not prevention. It's it's stall. It's I call it stalling, you know, like. We'll just stall until you get, you know, I'll keep checking your sugars until they get high. You know, like, what is that? <laughs> so, yeah, the the approach is really not, it is, it has many holes. So I think uh, your question is a good one. Why can't we just, you know, change the medical system to do that, the mm -hmm. philosophy to be different? But I really do think those two things are a hindrance. Yeah. And then I think that now this changes 
people's access. Like if you don't have the money, the extra money to pay for these, you know, alternative treatments, yeah. then it's like you feel like you don't have a choice. Once again, it takes away your power because you don't have the money to afford to pay out of pocket for many of these yes. other types of therapy. Yeah. You know, we'll see where we get with um, national health plans and that kind of thing. Again, Brian, I'm trying, Brian, to see the unseen. <laughs> Wherever you are, I'm trying. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's been an honor. It's really, I'm so thankful to be here with you. And we definitely have to stay in touch. And I can't wait to see how far this book is going to go. I'm going to be watching you. Mm, thank you for that kind of support. I, I really feel that. Thank you. All right, friends, that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to the show and share this episode with a friend. Thanks so much for tuning into Fuck Being Stuck, the podcast. Be sure to check out the show's notes for this episode on www.drsabrinanicole.com and follow us on social media. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. We'll be back next week with more. See you then.